Welcome to the October 2018 ATS Section on Medical Education podcast on Structured Simulation Debriefings, an interview with Damien Shield. Welcome, everyone. Summer's over, weather's getting a little cooler, NFL football is back, and so are SOME podcasts for the 2018-2019 academic year. I'm your podcaster, Deepak Pradhan, Palm Crit Care attending at NYU. Today, I thought we'd talk a bit about simulation and focus on arguably the most important part, the debriefing phase. In this podcast, we'll discuss some of the theory, some of the art of practice, and provide some practical tips to overcome barriers to success. I'm joined by one of my friends and former colleagues, Damien Shield, which is kind of a superhero name, Shield, Damien Shield, and he is super. Faculty at Harvard Medical School, practicing emergency medicine physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Damien has an extensive background in simulation education and is the current senior director for the Institute for Medical Simulation, Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. Damien, welcome. Thanks, Deke Pat. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Damien, any other disclosures I should make before we get started? I suppose by way of disclosures, I'm currently a uh, at-large board of directors of the simulation of the Society for Simulation and Healthcare, which is the largest interprofessional group uh, of simulation professionals, and mm-hmm. uh, it's an organization that I'm very proud of, and I think is doing really great work, both in the U.S. and internationally, to promote the field, the application, and the professionals working in simulation. And uh, of course, I worked with you at NYU for over six <laughs> years when I was the medical director at the New York Simulation Center for the Health Sciences. So just want to give a shout out to my NYU and NYSIM peeps. All right. Damien, let's get started with some basics. So what is a simulation debriefing and how is it different from just feedback at the end of a simulation scenario? I like this question because I'm generally into, as a second, English as a second language uh, learner, I'm always interested in definitions and the nuances of language. And the Society for Simulation and Healthcare actually published a dictionary, and uh, which was also printed by AHRQ and it's freely available on the SSH website. And so definitions are really key. Uh, some of the ones that I think I'm interested in sharing today with you is First of all, what I mean by a, a simulation session. So for me, a simulation is the immersive experiential opportunity to take care of a patient that's not in the clinical setting. The simulation session is composed of a simulation and a debriefing. The debriefing is the learning conversation that happens after an event to review and learn from both what went well and what can be improved and to foster reflection. In my mind, feedback is a part of the debriefing. The uh, learner participant gets feedback from the simulation itself, from the peers, uh, the interprofessional team they're working with, and from the instructor. And debriefing is more than that. It includes the reflection on the feedback that is given and the learning process that will occur. The Mm -hmm. definition of feedback that I most like is uh, one from uh, Olin Tenkate, which is that it's information about a performance compared to a standard. Okay, good start. As a quick aside, any of the resources or articles we mentioned in this podcast, I'll have up on the SOME website under the specific page of this podcast. 
for example, the Simulation Dictionary or the Tenkate article, etc. Damien, I want to understand the importance or necessity of debriefing in general. In the age of the self-directed, self-motivated learner, I'm given a simulation case, I step up and diagnose my patient with anticholinergic poisoning, but oops, it turns out to be sympathomimetic toxicity instead. I realize I have a knowledge gap, and I'm embarrassed because it's shown in front of my peers and instructors, so I go home, read a bunch about the two conditions, and voila, learning occurs. What's wrong with that approach? Why is a formal debriefing necessary to the learning process? So, thinking about the vignette you're giving there, participant takes care of a patient, they form in their mind some working diagnosis, they take some actions. Uh, As you were describing, their mental model was one physiology when it should have been a different one. Mm -hmm. I think if you stop at that was wrong, you should be thinking this other way. We're dealing in the knowledge domain. I think that's pretty limited. We can do that with podcasts, lectures, small group discussions. I think whenever I'm using simulation, I want to leverage the fact that we're dealing with the application of knowledge, that we're thinking about the thinking patterns that go into So to me, what would be key is not to let the learner or participant go off and figure out where they went wrong on their own, but rather to investigate as a group led by the instructor and find out what were the thinking patterns at those moments and how did they evolve and what was the data that was being used or not used. This is what, of course, healthcare professionals and healthcare educators have been talking about for decades, which is how do we teach clinical reasoning? What is the bedside decision-making? For me, thinking about simulation, I try not to think of it as too much of a modern way of learning. I think it's just a newer application of what we've been doing all along and a real opportunity. The real beauty of what I've seen in healthcare simulation in health centers and academic centers is that we're putting learners and clinicians and teams and faculty in a room together to think about their thinking and make progress. Um, so that's, that's where I see the value. Fantastic. So really the value of debriefing is more than just feedback, more than just identifying knowledge gaps, but really at the metacognitive level of understanding thought processes and particularly in a valuable group dynamic. So in general, is there an optimal amount of time to budget for the debriefing part as compared with the simulation itself? This is a question that I get a lot in our simulation instructor courses or at conferences. And for many years, People have kind of touted ratios like two to one and three to one, and there really haven't been any studies looking at what's the optimal amount of time to spend discussing the the situation. In my practice, I have struggled to do more than one good case per hour, and usually I, I will spend have the learner spend about no more than 10 to 15 minutes doing a interesting, authentic, complex case. And so that would leave us about 40, 30, 40, 45 minutes to have an in-depth conversation. The juicier the topic, the more interesting the teamwork skills or dynamics, the more hotter the topic to use Amy Edmondson and Diana McKillian-Smith's phrase around uh, conflict in the workplace, the hotter the topic, the more time that you would need. And I guess another way to think of it is if you want to have a uh, superficial conversation, you probably don't need that much time. It's I would think of it like in our practice, if we're 
going to go in and want to quickly do some counseling or get some results, maybe you don't spend too much time. But if you want to have an in-depth family meeting, you're probably going to have a lot, a lot more time. And by the way, the parallels to our clinical practice don't end there. It's amazing how learning through conversations is uh, so similar to learning in the clinical environment. Great point. I'm sure there are a number of parallels between learning in the simulation environment and the clinical arena, as well as student learning and patient learning. Damien, what tips do you have for creating a safe learning environment for the debriefing part specifically? Yeah, great question. Um, And many authors have looked at psychological safety and uh, mentors of mine in our group at Center for Medical Simulation have written in the Simulation and Healthcare Journal about this. Part of it is about the actual activity being a safe uh, place. And what we mean by safe in order to, in simulation, there's two things. One is we want to make sure that it's safe for the learners in terms of their physical safety and safe for patients. So you're not putting patients at risk. By creating the simulations, you're letting people make mistakes if if they're there. And you're also protecting the patients because you're not letting any of the simulated medications make their way back to the patient, right? If you're if you're doing in situ simulation in the healthcare setting, or even if you're working in a sim center, should a white substance in a syringe labeled propofol make it to the bedside, that could be a problem and there has been harm. So that's some aspects of safety. But the psychological safety that the learners have to feel has to do with them being able to take interpersonal risks without fear of uh negative consequences. So that means they can speak their mind freely. They can discuss errors. There's a sense of confidentiality that is going to be maintained. And uh, that goes both for the simulation itself as well as for the debriefing conversation. And the second element is trust. I think uh, it's not just about psychological safety, but how do they see the, the debriefer, the instructor, the mentor, the teacher are they someone who has the um, qualifications to be speaking on the topic, who has studied the subject matter, who's a potentially a known expert? And uh, another thing that I uh, always think about is, is the debriefer consistent? So are they treating people fairly? Are they the same person who they know from the clinical setting? So, you know, if I'm a... Uh, snobby, snooty, attending on the ward, but I purport to be a touchy-feely, warm, welcoming instructor in the in the debriefing room, that does not <laughs> generate trust because that contrast um, is confusing. So for me, I'm really interested in mentoring debriefers and instructors and faculty towards being consistent and bringing their authentic self to all aspects of education, and um, and so to me, that's a way to generate trust, being transparent with your interests, your agenda, and your background and expertise. Honesty really is the best policy. So we've covered some important but peripheral aspects of the debriefing, but I want to now get into the meat of it and focus on the debriefing itself. Damien, big picture, how do you structure the debriefing? What are the key elements? So I generally think of the debriefing as having four phases. The first part is the setting the stage, the introduction. I like to introduce myself and give a roadmap for the conversation. 
like if with any method, learners have to learn to learn in this new way and simulation is still relatively new, or perhaps people have been exposed to simulation under other people's rules. So I always want to know that folks that I'm working with, they know that I'm going to first ask them about their reactions and then we're all going to get on the same page. Then we're going to dive deeply into one or two topics and then we're going to wrap it up. So I try to do that in the introductory phase. You know, Next after that would be the reactions phase where my main goal there is to get people ready to learn. We're transitioning from a highly activated, sometimes emotional state of taking care of sick and dying patients um, and also showing our stuff in front of peers and other folks to a ideally more deactivated and interested phase where you're able to process cognitively and learn. So to do that, I want to do two things. One is air out initial reactions and emotions, and then make sure that we're all on the same page because being confused keeps you quite activated and not ready to learn. And so I do that by first asking how are people feeling and then by describing what I saw in terms of the main points of the case and checking to see if that's how they saw it and answering any questions. So I, I want to make sure that we all saw the anticholinergic patient and that we're not still worried if they were sympathomimetic, to use your earlier example. So I heard you say in the reactionary phase the word feel, as in how are you feeling, instead of think, as in what did you think of the case. Does feel work better for deactivation of emotion, whereas think lead more to cognitive assessment, which you're not trying to engage in yet? Yeah, I, I've, I've watched thousands of debriefings. I've performed thousands myself, and I've studied the topic. And here's the skinny on the nuances of the language. If you ask a learner right after a simulation a past tense question, how did you feel? How did that feel? How, how do you think that went? Any of those past tense questions will get them right back into the mindset that, you're, that they were just in and that you're trying to get them out of. And most of us clinicians with very high internal standards will start uh, castigating ourselves for the little things that we missed. And they will also, at times, not infrequently, share with you all the problems they encounter during the simulation, neither of which are helping them move towards a learning phase. So a present tense question, how are you doing right now? Or what are your initial reactions? Or if you're comfortable using a emotional question to say, how do you feel? You're going to be much better said because people will just tell you they're present. First thing off the top of your head, which gives you an in-the-moment needs assessment and also lets them release, vent, if you will, whatever they might be holding in. Uh, and having listened to many clinicians come out of simulations, I sometimes ask, how are you feeling? And they say, I should have given atropine. And for us as instructors, <laughs> we should not we should not misinterpret. They are it's not that they're not listening. It's not that they are avoiding emotion. A, a clinician saying I should have given atropine should be interpreted as some degree of regret. And so it is an emotional release. And as the instructor I'm gonna tolerate and accompany the 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 participant and uh and say, Okay, I hear you, you're thinking you should have given Atropine, we will talk, you know, that will, let's talk about that. We will definitely get into that. And so 
I'm very uh, committed to a uh, helping people ask a present tense, non uh, non evaluative, certainly not self evaluative question that lets people release uh, how they're doing right now. Excellent. Thanks for the clarification. So. That's the first part of the reaction space. The second part is to make sure people aren't confused. So, again, I'll I'll do that by sharing with the participants my view of the case, and uh, and then asking them to see what their take is. Because the simulation is not reality, and we need to be, make sure that the reality that the participants experience is is one that we're aware of. Because uh, reality is a subjective experience. So. Since we want to work on their experience to help them learn, we got to know uh, what that was like. That will allow us to then move on to the understanding phase. And this is where I think the bulk of the learning happens because participants receive feedback. They are able to share their mental model at the time and how they made certain decisions. By thinking about their thinking, they can reflect on their decision-making and actions whether it's individual or teamwork-based. And then, as they come up to new understandings, perhaps they misinterpreted certain signs or they didn't recognize a pattern or they were overly uh, fixated on a particular problem but not seeing the bigger picture, they're able to make uh, take new understandings. The next part of that will be to try to think about how they will avoid the same problem in the future or sustain the good performance in a different context. And we'll do that for each of the objectives of the simulation. At the end of that uh, microcycle of the understanding phase, then we'll move on to a closing, which generally takes the uh, form of uh, another question, present tense question, which is, what are your takeaways? So in the understanding phase, we actually really want to look at the, if, if in the reaction phase, I was focused on the present tense. In the understanding phase, it's a looking back. So I'm going to ask a lot of past tense questions to find out what folks were thinking at that moment, just like you would on rounds, right? You, you're rounding on the patients in the morning, and they've, uh, you had left the unit uh, hoping to diurese and have the patient net negative. But when you got there, you see that they're net positive, And so you're going to talk to your team about how it came about that they ended up getting fluids when you wanted them diuresed. Well, same thing with the debriefing. Let's find out what it, what was happening such that these actions were taken and then try to understand if that thinking was helpful and clear and made sense or if there was something buggy in their thinking that might have to be shifted and changed. And by the way, I don't want to give the impression that it's the instructor that's doing the changing. This is happening through discussion amongst the group with the facilitator uh, weighing in to help whenever needed. Perfect. So we've talked about the initial reactionary phase, then making sure everyone is on the same page about the content of the case, and then spending the bulk of the time, as you highlighted, in a group discussion, a very cognitivist model, to delve into and really understand the thinking behind the decisions, i.e. the decision-making, and then also abstracting the learning to other settings beyond the specific case, and then closing with conclusions. Is that a fairly accurate assessment? Absolutely. And with the group discussion, how do you reframe incorrect or errant thinking in a non-judgmental way? Do you have a format that you utilize? The approach or the style that uh, we're best known for is is coined the good judgment approach. And this is Jenny Rudolph and colleagues in their uh, 
early publication in the anesthesia literature and then in the simulation journals. And the good judgment approach is not like the non-judgmental or hidden judgment approach where you, as the faculty, have a view but don't share it in the hope that the learner will come to their own realization. And it's also not like the harsh or judgmental approach where you tell them what they did wrong and tell them what to do better in the future from your perspective. In the good judgment approach, what I try to do is I I bring my own perspective as the instructor and, and make a topic uh, of interest and suggest, let's talk about the decision-making around managing this agitated patient. Let's continue with our sympathomimetic versus anticholinergic theme here. So I, I bring the topic to the fore, and then I say, I saw you um, assess the patient. I heard you talk about their altered mental status and their uh, pyrexia. And then I heard you suggest that the patient uh, was anticholinergic. And I was thinking the history of cocaine use and the rave that the patient was at was more likely contributing to their being cocaine toxic. And I also, they were quite sweaty. So I didn't hear you talk about that. And so I saw it a bit differently. And I'm curious how you interpreted those signs and symptoms in that moment. So in that vignette, I'm doing what's called advocacy and inquiry. I'm pairing my point of view. I saw this and I think this was going on. And I'm bringing curiosity to find out what they were thinking. And so there I might learn from the team that they did notice that the patient was quite moist, uh, but they thought that this was because of uh, ambient temperature. They, they didn't think this was sweatiness or I might learn that they, so that's a misinterpreting the sign, which they saw. Or they might say, you know, I didn't even notice. I didn't feel under the armpits. Or they might say, I didn't realize that sweatiness is a really good way to tell these two syndromes apart. Or they might say, I never considered an ingestion. I only thought of, you know, from cocaine, I only thought of this because of their past medical history. I got fixated because I saw that uh, interesting thing or because we're in the talks block. So I bring my feedback and my curiosity to find out the mental model that was active at the time. And in a team simulation, I might explore various different mental models. For example, in this, in this hypothetical example, the senior astute nurse uh, might say, you know what, I uh, was thinking that, but I didn't say anything because I didn't want to be disrespectful. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's so that's very interesting. Now we have a whole other topic that's possibly worth discussing. Great points. I really like this approach. It's really grounded in self-reflective practice, a very non-threatening manner. Uh, it encompasses elucidation of students' internal frames. I think I've heard it referred to as being a cognitive detective to bring to those frames to light. And also appreciate the approach of advocacy and inquiry, the pairing of what the instructor sees them do objectively with understanding the underlying thinking behind those actions and decisions. Great. Yeah, so remember we talked about feedback as information about a performance compared to a standard. If I just said, I saw this, I was thinking this, it's just feedback. When I add the curiosity and the question, mm -hmm. it fosters the reflection. So that's why feedback is, in my view, feedback is part of the debriefing and 
and that's the main role of the instructor to critically watch from the outside the things that team members can't see for themselves. And I do want to acknowledge that there is a whole body of literature on team reflexivity. My colleague Walter Epic and uh, some of his colleagues from Europe have been working on that, and teams certainly have the ability to reflect from the teamwork literature and sports and other uh, media that coaches have a great impact, too, on people's performance, and so do team captains and team members and followers. So there's all the perspectives are valuable, and to me, I see great value in a highly trained instructor who can observe and debrief a performance to help teams learn and grow. Damien, how do you deal with learning issues that arise during the course of the discussion that weren't planned learning points of the simulation? For example, in your example, the nurse didn't want to speak up, so this brings up interprofessional issues that would be great to delve into, but that was not at all one of the core learning issues that you had planned to focus on a priori to the debriefing. So uh, my mentor, Robert Simon, calls this the debriefer's dilemma. You know, what, what do I do? Do I... Do I work on my agenda? Do I work on their agenda? I've come to see it uh, more of more as an integrative negotiation than a uh, than distributed. So it's not either their topic or my topic. It's really more about where do these topics mesh, and you know what can we accomplish in the time allotted and with my current kind of levels and skills. So. Let's be specific about some examples. So we created the case to work on the difference between sympathomimetic and the cholinergic uh, and anticholinergic syndromes, right? So that's what the curriculum called for, or that's what we were here to do. And yet in the post-event discussion, the team really wants to talk about how can they improve their ability to uh, communicate and coordinate as a team. Okay, so... I think that's an interesting topic. I haven't quite prepared for it as in-depth as I did, and I also don't want to throw away my objectives. What, I'd, what I'll try to do is I'll try to meld their interest and mine. So I'll say, look, let's, let's look at the moment when you guys summarized and coordinated your efforts, and let's talk about what was going on in terms of your clinical thinking at the time. So I feel like I'm working on their topic and also on my topic. I think that's my general approach. I try to take what I'm getting from them and um, and try to find a shared agenda. I like that, about trying to see in what ways does their learning topic dovetail with your planned learning objectives. And if you do a good job of publicizing, announcing branding and uh, orienting your learners to the fact that we're here for the interdisciplinary teamwork and communication and coordination high performance course, then they're more likely, I think, to want to talk about those things as opposed to fixate on the pharmacology or the difficult airway algorithm. So there's some uh, things that are in the context of which you're deploying your simulation and debriefing that I think are also important. Excellent point. Stressing the importance of pre-briefings and instruction to set the stage and frame the actual discussions thereafter. Damien, can you talk a little bit more about how you end the debriefing, how you crystallize take-home points thereafter? I'm usually thinking I'm appreciative that they took care of a sick patient and put their skills on display. 
And then they were willing to have a interesting, deep conversation about what they were thinking and possibly even discuss some ideas for the future. And just like in any you know meeting, I don't want it to just end there. You know, that's just energy that was expended. It's got to have some downstream effect. There's got to be learning to come from it and ideally patient outcomes. So I'm really obsessed with what in educational uh, speak is called transfer. Like, will this learning actually get to the workplace? And so there's a couple of things that I have in mind. One is I want to generalize the lessons beyond this particular case. So I don't just want them to learn about the specific case that we created, but I want them to be thinking about how this applies to their practice in general. And also that they make some concrete steps to either identify and overcome barriers that they might encounter. So for example, they might say, okay, so I've learned about the importance of summarizing and I'm going to summarize during every resuscitation. And I'll say, well, that sounds lovely, but how are you actually going to remind yourself or what will it take? And so we'll come up with a personal strategy that they would say, okay, before we even start our shift with my rapid response team, I'm going to contract with my team and say, look, when we get called for our first call, I'm going to definitely do a summary and I'm going to invite you all to ask questions. So that might be a uh, mental rehearsal preparing to apply in the in the real uh, in the real setting. The other thing is, uh, we only have so much time. Not everything could be dealt with during the session. So I frequently follow up with participants with resources. I email them papers, uh, links to certain podcasts or lectures uh, or resources because I want the learning to continue beyond the debriefing itself. Great points. What we all care about is trying to take what's learned in the simulation arena and have it applied to patient care in the clinical arena. This is just really, in my view, parallels what we do on rounds or in my context, on shift when we're supervising cases. It's, you know, it's, I'm not just helping them think about what extra questions to ask this patient that's presenting with chest pain. It's for every patient that comes in with a diagnostic dilemma, you want to ask about these and that and the other. So generalizing big piece and uh, resources for further learning or prescribing for the future. And if you can do those two things, I think you're doing so well. Awesome. So I want to move from the structure of the debriefing to the interaction between debriefer and learner, particularly with troubleshooting when confronted by different learner types. Let's start with the quiet, maybe disinterested learner. How do you engage them? We've all had this situation, right, where we've created a great learning opportunity and it's not, it doesn't seem like it's working for everyone. Someone might be quiet. So, the, you know, the first thing I learned in this area, uh, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm a big extrovert, but that's not the way everybody is. So, you know, I used to interpret the quiet person as disengaged, not interested, or maybe upset, and you know, now I know that they might just be processing and learning, and I'm not necessarily going to be that negative about it, uh, especially if it's if it's someone that I know. If you know the the idea that you might have a longitudinal relationship with a with a trainee, you know, that's pretty common, and so you can get to know certain people, and you know that's how they process in a multi-scenario kind of half-day course. 
I might check in with someone at a break and just try to assess you know, their processing style. But of course, I also want to uh, invite them. And so uh, there's some strategies I might have to get people involved because maybe they just need a little uh, invitation. Maybe I'm, in, I'm running through a differential in my mind. Maybe they're the only one out from a certain profession or maybe uh, they're not seeing it so relevant or maybe there's a power gradient. Some in, they're intimidated. So some of the practical things that I might do is one-on-one I might say, hey, I you know, I'm really, haven't heard you speak in the previous debriefings and I'm really interested in your perspective and if you're willing to share, that would be great. That would be kind of indirect and in private. In the middle of a debriefing, I might use body language, like I might ask a general question, but turn to them and with my gaze, invite them. Uh, Silence can be really powerful here too. And then finally, another technique that I uh, tend to use, for example, you describe an action that they did and then ask generally, what were people thinking in that moment? Generally, that calls their attention uh, and they feel invited to to weigh in. Some people support cold calling, and I have done it at times, but I generally don't uh, don't try to force it so much. One final strategy might be might be to say, for example, you know, so I'd really like to now invite the nurse anesthetist perspective on this topic, and so then you're kind of highlighting the profession and uh, inviting a particular group that maybe hasn't spoken. Nice. Very useful ideas. A lot of subtle, non-intrusive techniques that you highlight. I really like the suggestion of using nonverbal cues or body language and also understanding what makes learners unique and leveraging that to engage them more. Excellent. I should point out a, a new paper on this topic called um, Difficult Debriefing Situations by uh, Vince Grant and uh, Adam Chang, Walter Epic, and others that reviews some of these strategies. That would be an interesting uh, paper to to follow up on. There you go. I'm I'm using the technique I described on uh, giving a resource for further learning. Very appreciated. What about the dominating learner, the one who has a lot to say, wants to answer all the questions posed generally to the group? What do you do with that learner? Yeah, I know this type. The main thing that I that I've learned about this uh, working with these folks is that. It's probably not the first time that this has happened to them that they're the one taking up the airtime. So uh, many times I've gotten myself to say, uh, "Thank you, I appreciate your contributions, and I'd like to hear from other people." And they know what that means. They've heard this before, so I don't think that's a problem. I don't think it's disrespectful, and I think it's just a little nudge that helps them. I of course don't want to immediately squelch that because. They're usually helpful and bringing in interesting things. So a direct approach could help. Uh, There are some indirect things, much like what I was discussing with the quieter person. So avoiding eye contact, sitting next to them, uh, really makes it difficult to to be inviting because they're kind of in your blind spot. You're not uh, making eye contact, Uh, not putting their name or not focusing too much on them in terms of... uh, Frequently, it can be the team leader who is talking a lot because they potentially feel responsible for the team or they feel that they were the protagonist. So really inviting other perspectives and other uh, other focus of the conversation can also help. And 
I suppose I guess what I'm what I'm sharing with you here is that I don't necessarily see either talkative or quiet as such problematic. They're just dynamics that need to be managed and thinking about um, how they're in play, being aware of them, and uh, working with them, I think, is key. Hmm. One uh, one more thing I would say about, uh, you know, for, for where I think a potential pitfall is, and I have young kids too, as you know, sometimes a talkative person, it, it could actually be an value-based or issue-based situation where they are really convinced that the most important thing that needs to be discussed is adhering to the sepsis guidelines. And they might be bringing up the topic over and over. And if you don't acknowledge them that, and make sure that they were heard and say that you know that this is important and that you would like to move on, they're going to keep on nagging uh, like a nagging child until you until you said, okay, I heard you. So acknowledging that you're hearing people is also a, a uh, helpful uh, move, even when you're not necessarily going to engage on the topic that's that's proposed. Really chock full of great practical tips. We love teaching people in our courses and when we mentor folks. And I'm you know lucky that I could spend the bulk of my academic time helping people with their educational practice and their clinical practice. So. I'm really glad to share these with you and the audience. One more learner type for you, the defensive learner who readily blames the simulation experience itself or other extraneous factors rather than admitting to errors in performance. If I'm thinking someone is being defensive or, you know, ego protection might be another way of thinking about it. That's my assessment, that's my assumption. I'm really not sure. I, so first thing I do for myself is just say, look, this is a hypothesis. I'm not sure about this. I have to stay skeptical. Even though I'm feeling like they're <laughs> deflecting, defending, maybe that's not it. So that's thing one for myself. With regards to the type of person who's saying there were other factors, the team wasn't performing, there was no way I could have known, I sometimes take a, a strategy that I've learned from the customer service literature, which is called match and lead. I'll just take them for their word and say, let's talk about that. Let, let's look exactly at what information you had and let's push further there. So instead of saying no, I say, yes, let's talk about it and meet them with their energy where they're at. And so that might be one way of dealing with someone. Again, I'm taking them seriously. I'm holding a high standard. Once you've done that a few times, it'll either be really productive or they'll learn that you're taking them seriously and that they can't really do that. So that's one way of looking at it. When the situation has more to do with what I would call a realism or a simulation complaint, where they say, well, the patient didn't have this or that, or the situation wasn't exactly the way it would be in real life, or I wouldn't have done this if it was in my context, then my strategy is to violently agree. And this might be surprising, but you know what? They're right. And this is not an argument that I want to win, I can win. So when they say the materials weren't organized the way I'm used to them, it's true. When they say the patient didn't look pale and diaphoretic, it's true. When they say the breath sounds were confusing, it is true. And so I'm just going to agree with them and, again, then work with them 
towards whatever learning goal or what productive conversation we might have. But I think it's not as complicated as people fear. If you just take people seriously, don't assume that they're trying to be malicious or avoiding the learning and work with them. Excellent. Sounds like using validation and transparency to diffuse the situation and allow the debriefing then to get back on track. This is good educational philosophy topic, you know, for all of us educators to get into because it's like, how do you see the learner? Do you see them as, as someone that that you are going to teach and you're going to and you're going to evaluate them on their ability to play the game that you're proposing. You know, are you a good student because you show up to class and do your reading and take tests? Are you a good student because you engage with simulation? Well, that's not really what it's about. And so I want to get on the side of the learner. I want to understand where they're at and I want to help them as much as I can. It, you know, if you want to do a final parallel with clinical, it's you know, are, are they really not adherent? to the treatment or medication, or are they doing the best they can given their situation, given their knowledge uh, and the information that you've given them? And I think both in healthcare and in education, we have to also look at ourselves and see how are we contributing to the situation? What are we doing to, to create this dynamic? Excellent. Damien, I thought we'd finish up on some logistical, methodological odds and ends. Are there different models out there other than the one you described for structured debriefings for simulation? As an ongoing project, we we stay up to date on all of the published debriefing methods. They tend to have three or four phases, depending on whether you're a lumper or a splitter. Some of them might even have seven phases, but in general, they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what I described earlier today is an introduction and then a beginning, middle, and end. So... If you look at any any method, they generally follow that pattern. And my take is it's really helpful for the learners if your institution has a particular method that they follow, because then they don't have to learn to learn with simulation every time they show up to the simulator. I mentioned we're interested in uh, promoting the good judgment approach. That's one way of doing it. There's something called the gas model. There's the diamond model. There's uh, something called the pearls approach. There's a number of these mnemonics or structures, but in general, in reality, it's the educator that's going to have the the how and the why that's going to bring the curriculum to life and really make it productive. Okay, Damien, last question. How do you assess the effectiveness or success of the debriefing session? The other thing that we've done a bit on is assessing the quality of the debriefing itself. So it's really looking at the process. And there are a number of assessments. The the one that we have developed is called the DASH, the Debriefing Assessment for Simulation in Healthcare. And it's freely available on our website, which is harvardmedsim.org. And the DASH allows a trained rater to assess a debriefing or the instructor to self-assess or a learner to rate their experience. And there's been some validity and psychometrics performed around this instrument. And, and there's others, too. There's a tool from England called the OSAD, the Objective Structure Assessment of Debriefing. I, I suppose the question is, like, why would you be interested? And in, in, in the society and in the whole field of simulation, people are really interested in return on investment, both as a business model, but also as making sure that we're making an impact with simulation. So I think 
increasingly we're going to be looking at that. I'm personally more focused on the learning process and, and my personal assessment of whether a, a simulation session is valuable or went well follows the is, is the following algorithm. One, uh, are the learners engaged? Do they look like clinicians when they are taking care of the patients? And do they sound like clinicians reflecting when they are in the debriefing? To me, that's, those are some major assessment points. Then I'm going to look at their takeaways. Are they taking useful, valuable things away to their practice and not just ticking a box that says, yeah, I showed up to the simulation and I talked about what we did? And then finally, did they find value in spending an hour with us as opposed to on the ward, at home, reading, sleeping, whatever the other options, on on some social media device, whatever the other options might be. So I think, are they engaged? Do they look like clinicians? Are they thinking about their practice and do they value it? That's That's my take on it. Perfect. Really appreciate all the different resources that you mentioned during this podcast. Again, I'll put up the references on the webpage associated with this podcast. Damien, any last closing thoughts? I think the only thing I would say is that a lot of us have been thinking and doing a lot of this for quite a while, and we have made so many mistakes along the way. I, I could tell you every aspect of simulation, I've, I've made some mistake. So I just want people to feel like if it's not coming easy, it's not supposed to. It's just like when you started your training, you didn't just suddenly become a master clinician. It it took a lot of practice and effort and mentorship and that it's worth it. I think the kind of transformative conversations, the aha moments, people really visiting their practice and their thought processes in the process of reflection is really worth it. And so I'd say if it's going well, keep at it. If you're struggling. There's plenty of us out there struggling and, and wishing to get better. So find a practice partner and and practice. To me, it's been really meaningful to be involved in education in this way. And it's also really helped me in my clinical practice because, as I said a couple of times, there's so many parallels and so much useful crosstalk between my education self and my doctor self. So I hope that's happening for a lot of you out there as well. Fantastic. I think that's a perfect place to to stop and end, end our uh, our podcast on on debriefings and really kind of uh, delving into a lot of areas that even go into transcend the stimulation experience and then go to the clinical arena as well. Damien, thanks so much for spending the time and giving us your amazing, amazing insights. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, and I hope to be back uh, with you and, and with other colleagues to uh, keep on changing the world. Thanks to everyone for listening, and until next time. This concludes our podcast with Damien Shield on structured simulation debriefings. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more ATS Section on Medical Education podcasts coming out soon.